slipped in through an open back door and held up the place. Between the registers and the employees' wallets, they stole $1,903.42. Brewer's getaway driver was his sister, Angelina, who waited in the alley in her white Jeep Cherokee. The tall black man was Michael Smith, a paroled felon whose crime of choice was robbing small Sacramento motels. The stocky, slump-shouldered brewer, wearing a child skeleton mask from Halloween and carrying his beloved Mossberg pistol-gripped 12-gauge shotgun, scared the shit out of the employees who were closing up. No one was dumb enough to give the robbers any trouble. Not with Brewer and his ugly brown and black Mossberg. It measured a menacing 28 inches from finger-sculpted grip to its deadly muzzle opening, staring them in the face. It was a snap. Easy in, easy out. A month later, Christmas was coming. Brewer and his girlfriend, Marishu Flores, liked to party and get loaded. Their favorite drugs were cocaine and marijuana. Flores liked crank, too. She used it heavily when she was pregnant with her five-month-old son, Rick Brewer Jr., and the baby suffered from drug-induced tremors when he was born. The couple was not in the Christmas spirit, however. They'd been fighting even more than usual. Worn out and depressed, Flores had checked herself into a county mental health facility for some peace. When Brewer called to find out when she'd be coming home, he got belligerent at the nurse's stonewalling and threatened her. I have the same thing the cops have, he barked into the phone, apparently referring to a gun. The nurse reported the threat, and because he was a felon, police came to search for the weapon. They couldn't find it, but a few days later, caseworkers from the state's Child Protective Services Agency came back and took away his three children. Brewer ran for the shotgun, retrieved it from its hiding place, and was about to chase the CPS workers down the stairs of his apartment when Smith, who was with him at the time, stopped him. Brewer was mad at his world. His kids and lady were gone. He was broke. Why not hit the bread store again? Brewer didn't want to use his sister this time. Smith's cover was blown because he refused to wear a mask in the first robbery. Brewer wanted a new crew, people he could control more easily. Because he and Flores had lived in Southside Park before they had moved a few months earlier, he was familiar with a lot of the young wannabe gangsters in the area. Southside is a rough part of Sacramento that sits on the southern edge of downtown. At night, Southside Park is a haven for drug dealers and gangbangers. Brewer knew the scene. He had plenty of punks to enlist from the collection of unsupervised teenage males who used the park to hang out and get wasted. Because everyone in the neighborhood knew Brewer had been to the joint and wasn't reluctant to kick someone's ass when necessary, many of these punks both looked up to him and were afraid of him. None of them would give him any shit. Easy in, easy out, he told 16-year-old Carlos Cervantes, a sweet-faced kid who liked to steal cars and was among Brewer's Southside admirers. Want to make some money? Brewer asked him a few days before Christmas. You down for a lick? Yeah, man, I'm down, Carlos assured Brewer. For a wheelman, Brewer chose Bobby Dixon, a 23-year-old parolee who was only three weeks out of state prison for Grand Theft Auto. Brewer had grown up with Dixon a tall, skinny black man who, like Carlos, could barely read or write, but had an uncanny talent for being able to bust into a locked car, get it started, and rip it off in less than five minutes. If they got caught, Brewer knew Dixon would keep things quiet with the cops. Dixon knew how things worked. Brewer was the only one in the group who had a car that ran, a ratty old 1976 Cutlass, but he wasn't about to use it in a robbery. They needed some wheels, a G-ride they could dump right after the job. It was up to Dixon and Cervantes to find one. The term G-Ride came from the gangster rap music Brewer and his pals liked to listen to while they drank malt liquor and hung out in the park. A gangster's car was his G-Ride. A robbery was a lick. Everything was cool. 
Three days before Christmas, Dixon and Cervantes were walking around the neighborhood when they found their G-Ride. The black four-door 1992 GMC Jimmy was sitting in the alley. It was a snap to Jack. As soon as he got his hands on the Jimmy, Dixon was driving the hot truck like a wild man around the streets of his neighborhood. He wanted everyone to see his new ill-gotten toy. Less than a month out of the joint for the same crime, and he's showing all the punks in the street how he makes his own damn rules. Fuck the cops. It was a game to Dixon and his boys. Brewer wanted a couple more guys to go in and help him loot the place and make sure the employees followed his orders without a fuss. Ricky Martinez and James David Glica were 16-year-old gangbangers who knew Brewer from when they used to visit their girlfriends in the apartment complex Brewer and Flores lived in. Martinez was a short and stocky wise-ass who didn't do much except drink, say motherfucker a lot, and chase girls. His mom, Rhonda Ibera, tried desperately to keep an eye on him but she had too many of her own problems to make it happen. She freely admits drinking and drugging too much while Ricky was growing up. Ricky's dad used to slap her around and spent time in state prison. She remarried another felon who drank and abused her and Ricky. Martinez had been in and out of several juvenile offender facilities for crimes that included possession of a loaded thirty-eight caliber handgun at school, stealing cars, throwing rocks at a moving car, assault, and robbery. Glica was different. He was bright curious about the world. He was a talented artist, good enough to be a professional illustrator. His father is a minister who also worked for the Sacramento Opera Association. But Gleek and he were not very close. J.D.'s parents divorced when he was about 12, and his mom moved with the kids to Arizona to get her son away from his gang associations in Sacramento. He moved back to town to stay with his dad. Unhappy and on his own most of the time, Gleek had a temper. He had been arrested for seriously beating a 25-year-old man who simply came up to him on the street. On the afternoon of December 23, 1996, Glica and Martinez wandered over to the park to hang with their homies. Brewer asked if they wanted to pull a lick downtown. Neither had the balls or the inclination to say no. Trevor Garcia, 23, a year younger than Brewer, was dough-faced and pudgy. He was a doper and acute diabetic whose parents were divorced. He and his dad had moved about a year earlier from the Bay Area to the same apartment complex Brewer and Flores lived in. Affable and more laid back than the others, Garcia had no menace in him. He needed insulin shots twice a day and also had to take medicine for high blood pressure and to regulate his kidneys. He wasn't an angel, but Garcia had no criminal record. Broke most of the time, on welfare, Garcia hung out at Brewer's a lot, catching a buzz and chilling over video games. He liked 40s tall cans of cheap old English malt liquor. Despite his poor health, Garcia seemed to be able to drink them all day. Brewer had been pitching him about the job for more than a month, even before the first robbery. I was down, Garcia would say later. I didn't want to be a punk. Brewer mapped things out. He told everyone he'd been peeping the place for a while. Dixon would stay in the G-Ride. He'd sit in the alley with the motor running. The other four would force whatever employees were in the store to the floor and make sure no one moved. They'd empty the registers while Brewer did what he did best, scare the crap out of people. He'd wave the Mossberg in the air and freak out everyone with his new disguise, a red devil mask with horns, fake hair, and a deranged open-mouthed smile. He gave Garcia his old skeleton mask. Glica was to cover his face in a red t-shirt. Martinez got a nylon stocking somewhere and would use that to shield his identity. Dixon didn't need a mask because he wasn't going in. Everyone would wear gloves, so no one could identify them or the color of their skin. That way, they'd also leave behind no prints. That was the plan. Easy in, easy out. By the time dusk rolled around, 
Everyone but Brewer and Dixon had been drinking heavily. With Dixon at the wheel, they got into the jimmy and made sure everyone knew their assignments. It was about 5 p.m. They had a few stops to make and planned to get to the bread store by 6 o'clock, just before the cash went into the floor safe. Everything was good. Everything but the G-Ride. It was a piece of shit. When they tried to start it and pull away, the battery was dead. They still had some time, so Dixon ran around the corner and pulled the battery out of his car. Within 20 minutes, they were ready to get moving, but Lisa Lopez, Cervantes' 17-year-old girlfriend, had wandered by and was screaming at Cervantes to get out of the car. Carlos got out of the jimmy to talk with her, calm her down. Dixon's sister, Faye, was so disgusted with Dixon that she had called the cops and said her brother was driving around like an asshole in a stolen truck. The police know about the car, Carlos. Don't go, she said with tears in her eyes. Brewer yelled to his boy, Los, come here. Cervantes went over. Brewer's dark eyes narrowed. You ain't gonna go, Los? Cervantes looked at Lisa, looked at Brewer. No, man, he said. I'm cool. The others in the jimmy called them names, but Cervantes was out of the car, out of the plan. Now they were in a hurry. By the time they got to the bread store, it was 6.25 p.m. Most of Sacramento and its sprawling suburbs were preparing for the holiday. Tomorrow was Christmas Eve. Brewer told Dixon to cruise past the front of the store on J Street so he could peer inside. Four or five men were inside with brooms, sweeping the floors, closing up for the night. Pulling the jimmy into the alley, Dixon and the others saw that the back door had been left open again, just as it had during the first robbery. Dixon parked the jimmy next to a wall around the corner, and everyone else got out. Brewer was first in. Swinging the Mossberg through the air in a wide circular motion, the way old rock and roll star Pete Townsend of The Who wound his arm across his guitar for show, Brewer yelled for the three employees in the back baking area of the store to hit the floor. Martinez and Glico were next, storming to the front of the store where the registers were kept. Where's the safe, they demanded. Where's the fucking money? Garcia, stumbling out of the jimmy and falling to the ground, was last in. He heard one shot. Then he was inside and shouting with the chorus, Where's the money? Where's the fucking money? Employees Dung Dow, Kelly Range, and Josh Christian managed to make it out the main door on J Street. Dow ran from the back of the store to the front yelling, Get out! Get out! Run! Run! Range and Christian raced next door. Call 911, they shouted to a clerk. There's a robbery in progress. That left only employee Hector Montalongo in the back. A quiet 31-year-old bread baker from Mexico, Montalongo tried to get away by running up some stairs to offices on the second floor. When he realized that the robbers had seen him, he meekly came back down and hoped for the best. Glica kicked him and ordered him to the ground. Montalongo spoke broken English. He had a wife and three small children at home. He was sure he was going to be robbed and killed. When he stuttered that he didn't know anything about any money, that all he did was bake bread, Martina sprayed him in the face with a can of mace Garcia had given to him earlier that day. The robbers and Montalongo were in the front now. The only other employee in the store was Jason Frost, the 23-year-old assistant manager. Everyone was yelling, where's the money? Where's the fucking money? Glica and Martinez rummaged through the bread store's cash registers. When they realized they were empty, they crashed them to the floor. They were scattered on the floor in pieces as Brewer zeroed in on sandy-haired Jason Frost, who was behind the counter, near the floor safe. Where's the money, motherfucker? The man in the devil mask demanded. Open the fucking safe. The Mossberg was in Frost's face. He had nowhere to go. Trapped between a wall and the bread counter on three sides, and with Brewer behind the counter with him, demanding the cash, Frost muttered something about the money already being placed in a drop safe. 
Christian had placed it all in plastic sandwich bags and slipped it into the floor safe only minutes before the robbers came in. It couldn't be opened until the owner showed up the next morning. I don't have a key, Frost said to the man in the devil's mask. Range and Christian were across the street, looking into the store window, when they saw the stocky man in the devil's mask fire point-blank at Jason Frost. His sweater and body somehow opened wide all at once. The young man, an eight-inch hole in his right abdomen, spouting blood and exposing his intestines and bowel, melted to the floor. The shooter racked the Mossberg again, dropping the spent cartridge in the process. Garcia was in the store now, too, shouting for money while Brewer placed the still-smoking weapon on Jason Frost's left side. Frost was already mortally wounded. The enraged man in the devil's mask fired again. The wound was smaller this time, but the gun was again fired at extremely close range. Lying in a pool of blood, his internal organs partially exposed on the cold tile floor, it's hard to imagine any conceivable reason that Jason Frost should have been fired upon again. Putting the muzzle of the hot gun directly on Jason Frost's left buttock, Brewer squeezed the trigger a third time. Two days before Christmas, Jason Frost was reduced to something that barely resembled a human being. His body lay in pieces. Forensic experts would say later it was unusual to examine a crime scene where a shotgun is fired three times and no pellets are found on the floor, in the walls, or ceiling. Jason Frost's blood, skin, and muscle tissue seemed to be splattered everywhere in the area behind the bread counter. The lead pellets were found deep inside his flesh and organs. So was cardboard wadding from the shells. By the time the cops and paramedics arrived, the robbers had fled. They got no money. Jason Frost was on the floor in shock and barely alive. As the robbers sped from the scene, Dixon kept asking Brewer what had happened. Why had he heard gunshots? How much money did we get? A little less than a mile from Southside Park, the Jimmy died again, so they ditched it. Brewer hid his weapon in some bushes. He would return later to retrieve it, and they ran the rest of the way to the park. Just before the robbers came into the store, Frost had telephoned Megan Gold, the girl he was living with and planned soon to propose to, to say he'd be right home. Worried when he failed to show up, Megan went to the bread store to see what was keeping him. She saw the half-dozen squad cars and yellow police crime tape blocking off the front entrance and almost passed out. In Yuba City, a small town about 35 miles north of downtown Sacramento, Jack Frost was just sitting down to watch the San Francisco 49ers play the Detroit Lions when the telephone rang. Becky, Jason's mother, had drawn a bath and was looking forward to relaxing in it after a day running errands and finishing her Christmas shopping. The next night would be the first time Jack and Becky visited Jason since he...